Um, I thought this would be a wonderful theme, Brothers United Strong. And then also I went to uh, Richard, Dr. Vargas. I went to Richard and I said, uh, this is what I'd like to convey, that we need each other. Who would you like to speak on, uh, and on your choice? Uh, you'll be speaking Thursday night. I'll be speaking Wednesday night. Who would you like to speak? He said, I would like my mentor, Pastor Alex Montoya, to speak. And that's who we heard last night. And uh, tonight, um, I wanted to be able to select uh, someone that uh, is, is so important to me through the 20 years of my ministry. And uh, um, here this evening, our evening general session, the speaker is going to be Pastor Chris Bauer from Santa Rosa Bible Church. Uh, I know many of you know this, but I wanted to just kind of repeat this once again. Chris and I come from the same hometown. This is a, a picture of our town, Winona, Minnesota. Um, it's right on the Mississippi River, kind of, it's on the, that means the border with Wisconsin, kind of down near Iowa. And it's a beautiful place uh, with the river and a big lake, um, and there's a reflection. We have bluffs all around. It's, it's quite beautiful. I wanted you to see how cr close Chris and I lived. This is a, this is a Google's, uh, Google satellite shot, and you'd get out of my house on the bottom there on 1711 Gilmore, and you'd come out the front door, and you'd turn left, go four doors down past Peter Malky's house. Then you turn right, and you go past three houses, and then a little jog, and then the second house on the right is Chris's house. Um, and he's on Sunset. And uh, Chris is actually two years older than me. And uh, Chris is, uh, was my brother's friend. And so you know what it's like when you're the little brother. Um, I just wanted to hang out with the guys, and you know, it was hard, you know, I was a little less, and uh, they, you know, I, so I, I knew my place, and uh, uh, so uh, Chris and I, however, uh, when our family moved to that house, uh, I was in fifth grade, and uh, Chris was in seventh grade, we were in this school here, this is Jefferson, and we were the Jefferson Jets, and uh, so uh, Chris and I, uh, he was, like I said, in seventh grade, and when you're in fifth grade, Seventh graders in the same building, oh my goodness, that's quite intimidating. Um, and uh, then uh, when we were at the Winona Senior High School, Chris was a senior, quite well established. I came in as a sophomore. Our school was a 10th through 12th grade. So in sophomore year, I came into the school. Chris was uh, a great athlete, uh, played uh, football. Uh, I mentioned last night he's number 44. And, uh, you know, I, I just knew that. Um, and so Chris played football, scored touchdowns. I scored one. Um, it was on the bottom down there. I can still tell you where I got the ball and where I scored <laughs> that one time. But Chris scored touchdowns. He was a running back. And then uh, was a basketball player, and he ran track. He was a great athlete. And those, you know, there's a lot of that in high school. But the amazing combination, Chris was also the star of our high school musicals. Now, that's not Chris, by the way. Um, I did find a picture. This is from one of the uh, productions we put on called Where's Charlie? And uh, Chris uh, was, actually, Chris, I found one uh, with the guy doing the soft shoe dance with the, with the brim hat like you had in the yearbook. I didn't show that picture. Um, I didn't want to, you know, humiliate my friend. Um, so I thought that was pretty acceptable. Um, and uh, Chris was the lead in Where's Charlie? He was always the lead. He had the best voice in our high school. And so uh, Chris also was in a band 
Um, and so Chris would sing in the band and play bass. And so here I was, two years behind him, and just looked up to him. And he's my brother's friend. And, and so uh, it was, uh, he, was, he was really amazing, very popular. Our high school, we had about, uh, about 1,500 in our high school, 500 per class. Well, God saved Chris. Uh, through the ministry of some girls in our high school. Um, and uh, uh, God saved Chris through, uh, he heard the gospel uh, through uh, the girlfriend that he was dating at the time. And then God saved me. I liked another one of those girls, one of those four girls. Boy, that was great because she was a year older than me. And, you know, when you're like a junior and she's a senior, that was, that was you know, I was really trying to date her. And she said, I, I can't date you. You're not a Christian. And... Uh, I didn't know what that meant. And so God saved Chris, then God saved me, and then God, or Chris, <laughs> Chris allowed me to be his roommate. He was at Grand Rapids School of Bible and Music, and um, I, I got saved in October, and I knew I wanted to go there starting in January. And so Chris got back in Thanksgiving time, and I said, hey, you know, is it possible we could be even roommates? And I was, I'm, I've just never gotten over the fact that Chris has been my best friend since we were roommates, 1973. Um, my partner in ministry ever since those days. I was the best man at his wedding. Lori and he, your, um, your uh, anniversary is coming up the 26, 27, 28. Okay, I knew it was right around then. Um, and so then he was the best man at our wedding on uh, June 11. Uh, the year later, and uh, um, so we joined the IFCA around the same time. We've stayed at it. He's in an IFCA church in Santa Rosa, California, and has been for all these years, and I've done the things, and we'd be roommates at IFCA convention, and the reason that's so important to me is I could never have served in this position for 20 years without him. His encouragement and his fellowship I'd have tough times, I'd talk to him, and just sometimes I wouldn't even talk to him about the tough times. We'd just start talking about Mr. Hitt and Mr. Spencer and, uh, you know, Claire Merkowitz and, you know, uh, uh, the screw boys. <laughs> we had the goofiest names in our hometown. But uh, so we just talk about that, and I'd laugh, and then I'd be inspired and say, yeah, we'll, I'll keep going at this. So Chris has been so important to me. The point I'm trying to make isn't about Chris and me. It's about all of us. Because none of us can serve anywhere for any length of time without the partnership of many others. And that's the meaning of our theme this week. Brothers United Strong. So, Pastor Chris Bauer, can you please come open the Word of God to us tonight? Let's welcome him. That was torture. I'm sorry. I really apologize to you for that. I, uh... Good night, Les. Uh, was I supposed to preach tonight? <laughs> it's really a tremendous privilege to be standing here. Uh, my first convention was in Sacramento in 1981. And I was 29 years old, and I had just uh, moved to Northern California to be a church planter. And I think John MacArthur was a speaker that, uh, that year. 
And then over the course of the past several years, I've been to many, many, many conventions. Les and I used to come as young pastors, and we would sit under the teaching of some tremendous Bible teachers. And so this is an incredible privilege. I'm as nervous as a cat because uh, this is just a privilege. And I trust God has something for you as I open God's Word and share it with you. Uh, Alex last night uh, got us off to a tremendous start with a dynamic message, which we all expected, anticipated, and we got. So, Les, thanks for letting me follow him in uh, this order. He said that last night he was the uh, chips and salsa. So I was racking my brain, what could I say? What am I? I'm a chingy, ch- chimichanga, that's what I am. <laughs> okay, I worked hard on that, so thanks for laughing. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, we'll get to business here. So my, uh, my father was a naval aviator. Uh, he flew in the South Pacific during World War II, and he flew a uh, PB, PBM, which was an amphibious aircraft. And he stayed in the Navy for quite a few years in the reserves, and so as a little boy, I just developed this incredible interest in military history, especially the Navy. Uh, Nick, I saw you up here, and I was thinking of my dad, because I used to love it when he wore his Navy whites, and I just thought, That's like the most awesome guy I've ever seen. And so as a result, I've always had this fascination with uh, particularly World War II history. And of course, a few weeks ago, uh, we commemorated a significant event in world history, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which was the Allied invasion of Western Europe. And a lot of stories have come out of that fateful day, but one in particular that I suspect most of us are well aware of, was one called Band of Brothers. It was first a book by Stephen Ambrose, which I read, and then it was made into a movie miniseries, which I watched. And it's the account of Easy Company, the 506th Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division. And it follows them from their beginnings as Easy Company, at the, I think it was 1942, until the end of World War II. And it's the record of their training. It's a record of their exploits during the war. They parachuted behind enemy lines in the early hours of D-Day. They participated in the liberation of Keratin. And they parachuted into action during Operation Market Garden. They liberated a concentration camp. And they were the first to enter Hitler's mountain retreat in Berchtesgaden. And it's a really fascinating story of their comradeship. A very fascinating story. They developed this unique bond and loyalty because of their united efforts to fight a common enemy. As Christians, we are soldiers of the cross. And as soldiers of the cross, we're engaged in a massive spiritual conflict. We're all well aware of it in our personal lives. We're well aware of it in our ministry lives. It's an intense battle with a powerful and brilliant enemy. The Apostle Paul gives us a call to arms in the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter. 
You know the passage, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And just as easy company needed each other in their conflict with their Nazi adversaries. So we need each other in the conflict with our great adversary, Satan. So this evening, what I'd like to do is is develop this theme. God designed us to live in community as the body of Christ. And I'd like to just develop that thought through our time together. I'd like to look at three things. First of all, just talk about the value of interdependence. And then I'd like to illustrate it from the Old Testament and illustrate it from the New Testament. And so that's where we're headed this evening. So let's begin as we think of the value of interdependence. Now that word is probably familiar to a lot of us who have been in the IFCA for a number of years because many years ago, Dick Gregory, who was a former executive director used interdependence to describe how he envisioned us working together as an organization. If you were to get a dictionary out, look the word up, this is one definition that uh, you might come across. It's very simple. It means to mutually rely on others. To mutually rely upon others. To be interdependent is essential. As a matter of fact, It's how God has designed us. It's very fascinating to me that uh, from the beginning of time, God never intended for man to function in any form of isolation and independence. I'm glad we, we have a different name now, the IFCA International, because the word independent sometimes smacks of something quite negative. Genesis 2.18, it's very interesting. Moses wrote, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And what's interesting about that, it was the very first time in the creation account that God said something wasn't good. Very first time. And what he was saying is from his infinitely wise perspective, as well as his perfectly created order, it wasn't profitable for man to be without companions. So he designed us for community. What we're doing here and the existence of this organization, our local churches, this is all by design because God designed us to be in community with one another. Frankly, we're safest when we are in relationship with other believers. We best flourish when we mutually rely upon others. John MacArthur wrote, quote, Life is better with companionship. A loner has a difficult life, unquote. We're really talking about sanctified relationships, sanctified friendships. Solomon writes about the value of friendship in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'd like to turn there, turn to chapter 4, because I believe he teaches there There is increased mutual profit and protection when we partner with others. 
when we partner with others. And in that passage, he illustrates the value of companionship. So if you would, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and I'd like to read, to begin with, just verses 7 and 8. He said, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent. In the Hebrew, it means a second. A second. Having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous task. He's teaching us that to be alone, to function independently, to keep ourselves in isolation from others is vanity. It's, it's hollow. It's worthless. It's disadvantageous. It's unprofitable. As a matter of fact, it's downright dangerous. It's downright dangerous. And he explains with four simple pictures. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. We can accomplish so much more when we do it with the help of others. There is greater productivity when we understand we need one another and we function in harmony, not in disharmony, as followers of the Lord Jesus. I mean, remember the old adage, many hands make light work. And think of the counsel that Jethro gave to his son-in-law, Moses, in Exodus chapter 18. If you'd turn there for just a moment, let me just remind us of a familiar account. I'm going to begin at verse 13. It came about... The next day, then Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. It's a long day. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you, operative word here, alone sit as judge, and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Verse 17, the thing that you're doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. And we know how the story goes on. He gave them some advice how to be more efficient, and it basically was enlist the help of others. And so that's the first illustration that he gives to us in verse 9. Now look at verse 10. He gives yet another illustration. For if either of them falls, and the one will lift up his companion, let me correct that. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. It's kind of a sad situation. You fall, but no one's there to pick you up and aid you and help you. What's he talking about here? Well... I think he's talking about this. When we encounter trouble, when we have trials and obstacles, when we have problems of any kind, if you are in community, if you have companions, there's what? There's help. There's assistance. There's support if we're doing life together. But none of that is true if you're in isolation, if you're functioning independent of the body, you're functioning independent of the church. 
Matter of fact, this concept that he introduces to us here, this concept runs contrary to the rugged individualism of America. That seems to be what we're all about. I don't want to be ruggedly individual. Well, I want to be ruggedly, but I don't want to be individual. I want to be with others. I want to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ when I encounter crisis. I want them to be by my side. I want them to support me, pray for me, counsel me, encourage me, weep with me, give me a hug. Tell me to get off my duff and get to work. Whatever it takes. That's the advantage of it. Someone has written, a man without a companion is like a left hand without a right. God didn't design us to function as only a left hand or only a right hand in the body. We are to function in cooperation with one another. He gives yet another illustration in verse 11. He says, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? I think maybe what he has in mind here is that when we're hurting, when we're disappointed, and ministry, sadly and tragically at times, can be a world of hurt. I've been in the ministry for almost 40 years, and I know what that's all about. And it can be a world of disappointment sometimes. And so when we're hurting, when we're disappointed, if we're in community, there's comfort. There's consolation in community. We might even describe this particular aspect of our relationship with one another as a ministry of presence. As a ministry of presence. Uh, We can be the Lord's hands. Uh, We can come to someone who's hurting and we can do something that the experts tell us is very therapeutic. Give them a hug. Give them a hug. That's a simple thing to do to help someone who's hurting. Give them a hug. You don't come and give them a book. You don't come and start quoting scripture. You don't come and send them to some website. You just come and you give them a hug. But we can also be his feet, which means if there's some need, then I need to respond and serve that need and minister to that need, whatever it might be. We can also come and be ears of the Lord. We can attentively listen to the heart that's broken. We can listen carefully to the pain that they're experiencing. And we can also come, and we have a mouth, and we can be his mouth, and we can come and share a word of encouragement from his word. In uh, January of 1972, on a late, cold Friday afternoon up in Minnesota, I had gone across the highway to visit, uh, or actually to shop at Penny's for some records, and so my mother had been sick all week long, and as I left the house, I was 19, my brother was 16, and I said, keep an eye on mom. She'd been sick through the week, and she'd been doing some weird stuff. She'd get up in the middle of the day in her nightgown, and she'd start walking around the house dusting, and I'd say, mom, what are you doing? You need to go to bed. She said, no, no, we have guests coming tonight. I said, mom, we don't have guests coming. Something wasn't quite right. So I went to get my records. I came back, and as I pulled into the driveway, I noticed a highway patrol car was in our driveway. We had a neighbor who was a highway patrolman for the state of Minnesota. And when I put my car in the driveway, I came into the garage, I came into the side door, into the kitchen, and my mother was lying on the kitchen floor unconscious. And Arnie 
the highway patrolman was just hanging up the phone. He had just called for an ambulance. And he said, I'm not sure what's going on here, but your mother's very, very sick. And so I immediately called my dad at work. He told me to call my grandparents, my mom's parents. She was an only daughter. Their son was killed in World War II. And we were their only grandkids. So he said, call grandpa and grandma and have them come over to the house. And you go get your sister. She was going to spend the night with somebody. And so I got in the car, went and got her. I came back, came into the house, saw my dad. And I said, dad, how's she doing? And he gave me a a two-word answer. She's gone. She was 48. I was 19. My brother was 16. Sister was 12. My little sister was 9. The most devastating moment of my life to hear that my mother was gone. As word began to trickle out, friends and neighbors and family began to call on us. And I had two friends uh, in Winona at that time. I was a Christian. I was only about a year old in the Lord. And uh, these two guys were Christians. And they came over to the house along with everybody else. And I still remembered vividly their presence because they only did two things. They came and they gave me a hug and they said to me, we love you. And the second thing they did is they just made themselves available to anybody in the house that needed something done. Now, someone might look at that and think, well, that wasn't very profound, but I want you to know something. They said nothing really profound and they did nothing really profound, but their presence profoundly impacted my pain. You can't do that if you're living in isolation. You can't experience that if you're living independent of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in verse 12, he gives yet another illustration. He says, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him, and a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Very famous part of the verse. But I think what he has in mind there is simply teaching us that when we are alone, we are very vulnerable. We are very vulnerable. But with companions, we can find mutual protection when threatened. If you heard any of the testimony of those men who were easy company, you heard how they cared for one another, how they had each other's back. And it built a unique bond that they took to the grave with one another. That unique bond is by design. There's safety in numbers. We can have each other's backs, and that's what I believe Solomon is teaching us in this passage. Now, let me get practical for just a second. There's an interesting paradox and a curious paradox in the church today because often the loneliest man in the church is the pastor. The loneliest man in the church is the pastor. It's a sad fact of the matter that pastors are created for community just like all believers, and yet many of them crave isolation. The church is to be a community of care and support for everyone, including the pastor. But for various reasons, pastors tend to isolate themselves from others. Alex talked last night about the solo lobo, the lone wolf. There's another little phrase that goes with that. The strength of the wolf is where? In the pack. His connection to the others. 
his connection to the others. But for various reasons, pastors tend to isolate themselves from others, including other leaders. That's why a convention like this is so awesome. You can come. I've been coming here for years, and I've established relationships with men from all kinds of walks of life, ministry life, missionaries, pastors, laymen, and uh, they're old men, they're middle-aged men, they're younger men. I love coming here and just kind of seeing them and reconnecting, even though it's been a year since I last saw them. Because God has designed us for that kind of connectivity. But if you don't put yourself in those environments, you're really outside the will of God because he has designed us to be in community. Here's some interesting statistics. They're startling to me. I just came across these. A recent survey recorded these. 78% of pastors have no close friends. 78% of pastors have no close friends. 70% of pastors battle depression. They battle depression. 80% of pastors feel discouraged. Here's one. 1,500 pastors quit each month. 97% of pastors have been betrayed, falsely accused, or hurt by trusted friends. Is it any wonder they tend to isolate? And yet these very circumstances demonstrate the need for a trusted ministry companion. You need a trusted friend, either within or outside the church. Les and I have been that for one another. In our respective ministries, we've had blessed, enriching, wonderful days, but we also have had very challenging and difficult and painful days. And Les is usually the first one I reach out to and say, hey, can we talk? I have a question for you men who are in pastoral ministry, missions, even educational ministries. And the question is a very simple one. Do you have someone like that in your life? I'm so grateful. I've had less, but I also had a couple of wonderful godly mentors. My father-in-law, Pastor Bob Graves, and another pastor I served under, Marshall Swoverlin, when I lived in Southern California, and a couple of professors, Curtis Mitchell from Biola University and Gordon Kirk, from Biola University. These men, less, they were critical to me as a young man and as I matured in my life as a minister. So men, I have a question for you. Do you have someone like that in your life? If not, it's time to pray for one. You have not because you ask not, and then you need to look for one. Reach out to someone you know, someone you respect, and begin building a mutually supportive relationship with them. It's so critical. I wouldn't be where I am today, just as Les said, without Les, without my father-in-law, without Pastor Swoverlin, without Dr. Mitchell, without Dr. Kirk. I wouldn't be here. John Piper has written this, quote, No Christian can be a lone ranger. We won't make it on our own. We need each other to cling to Jesus. And that's my admonition to you who find yourselves in ministry today. You need someone like that. Now, let me illustrate it. Let me first of all take you to the Old Testament. We're going to go to the book of Exodus again, and this time chapter 17. It's a familiar account. Exodus chapter 17. Let me begin at verse 8. It says, Then Amalek came 
and he fought against Israel at Rephidim. This was an unprovoked attack. So Moses said to Joshua, Joshua, his general, choose men for us, go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And of course, what staff was that? Well, that was that staff that turned into a serpent and devoured the magician snakes. That was the staff that turned water to blood and brought forth frogs and brought forth gnats and brought forth thunder, lightning, and hail, and it brought forth locusts, and it brought forth water from a rock, and it parted, it parted the Red Sea. Now, it wasn't a magic wand. It was not a magic wand. What it was was a symbol of God's personal and powerful involvement in the life of Israel previously, and he would be involved again presently. It was an appeal for God's help. It was a visible sign. Victory was in God's hand. So verse 10 says, Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the mountain. Don't miss that. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. There was a shift in momentum on the battlefield, depending upon whether he had it up or whether he had it down. It says what the problem was in the next verse. It says, but Moses' hands were heavy. Have you ever tried to hold up something for a long time that's heavy? I've hung sheetrock on a ceiling. It's why I'm a pastor and I'm not a sheetrock putter-upper. I think that's the official title. I have hung uh, ceiling fans in my house myself, which is not a good thing to do when you're as useless as I am with tools. But I have discovered how hard it is to keep holding something up there. He holds the staff up, and he's, he's getting weary holding it up. And, of course, the minute it drops, the enemy prevails. But I love these two guys, Aaron and Hur. Look at what they do here. Then they, Aaron and Hur, took a stone, and they put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Uh, That's a wonderful picture of the very concept, the very theme we're talking about tonight. Because we see interdependence demonstrated on several levels in this incident. For instance, the Israelite army needed Joshua to give battlefield leadership. Joshua needed Moses to give directions as the supreme commander. And of course, Moses needed Aaron and Hur to give the supreme commander support. And ultimately, they all needed God because he gave the victory. It's a great picture of interdependence on many levels, but let me just talk about this one. Just focus on Aaron and Hur because it's a beautiful illustration and a beautiful demonstration of what interdependence looks like. Moses needed Aaron and Hur to support him in the heat of the battle. They noted his hands needed some assistance, so they sprang into action. And I noticed three things about these guys. First of all, they were resourceful. What was the first thing they did? They looked around, found a big stone, moved it over, and he sat on it. They were resourceful. But then look what they did next. Each took a side and helped keep the staff aloft. I like that. That's availability. 
They stood with him, one on each side. And I don't think he held it up like this. I think they were wise men. He held it up like this. Aaron helped him hold it up. And when he got weary, he brought it down, switched it to the other hand. Her held it up. And that went on all day long. Available. And then one last thing. Each remained at his post at Moses' side until the victory was secured. That means they were faithful men. That's the kind of people you look for, resourceful, available, faithful. Who can support you when you're weary and weak in the midst of your personal and ministry battles with the enemy? It could be a ministry peer. It could be a mentor, a friend. But I beg of you, if you don't have an Aaron and a her in your life, go find one so that they can hold your hands high while you engage in conflict. I had some conflict in the church earlier in this year. It was the most difficult time I've ever had in my 40 years of ministry. I have never emoted as much as I did then. I got up in the pulpit one Sunday morning, and I had the most difficult time to not cry as I sang, as I prayed, as I preached. But I was so glad I had some errands and some hers in my life. First of all, my sweet wife, who was there for me. And then my good friend, Les, who was there for me. And my son, who was there for me. And some others who came alongside and supported me through that time. If I'm in isolation, if I'm running and want to be an independent guy, I don't experience any of that. And I fail. And I lose the battle. You will as well, my friend. You need an Aaron and a her in your life, so who are they? If you see a brother in need, can I just encourage you to make yourself available and be a resource for that person and be faithful to that person and make yourself available for that person? It's going to date me a little bit. In 1969, the Hollies, uh, I wasn't saved in 1969. They had a song, and it was related to being there for a friend who needs someone to help carry a really heavy load. And there's a famous line that comes from the song. We all know loads can be very heavy, right? But it becomes lighter if I can come alongside and assist. And the line is this, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. That's bad English, but it's really good biblical theology. <laughs> he ain't heavy. Why? Because he's my brother. He's my sister in the Lord Jesus, and together we can carry these loads, and we can be successful, and like Moses, we can see victory on the field, because that's how big our God is. And then there's a New Testament illustration, and it actually comes to us from our, our Lord's life. We find it in Matthew chapter 26, and it's Matthew's record of Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane, having left the upper room after they had celebrated Pentecost, Pentecost, that's a few days later, Chris, after they had celebrated Passover, they're making their way, and I love this. This is verse 36. It says, then Jesus came with them. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. James and John, of course. 
And he began to be grieved and distressed. The word grieved means to be made sad to the point of great pain. And the word distressed means to be troubled to the extent that you want to just shrink away from it. You want to curl up in the fetal position and just cover your head and just hope it somehow goes away. That's the idea behind the word in the Greek. This is our Lord. But he takes these three guys. We call them what? The intimate three, Peter, James, and John. They're with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're with him in the garden. They're with him at the raising of Jairus' daughter. And so it says in verse 39, excuse me, the latter part of verse 38, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. That is, stay awake with me. And then he went a little beyond, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The word that's translated deeply grieved in verse 38, it literally means to be surrounded by sorrow, to be overwhelmed with stress. Luke, in his account in Luke 22, he's the only one who notes that an angel was dispatched from heaven to minister to Jesus at that moment. And he was so distressed, this is a condition called hematidrosis, where your system is so stressed out, it actually begins to rupture the capillaries, and you start sweating blood. That's how severe the distress was of our Lord. He knew that was coming, and he wants to be with his friends and he wants them with him, and he wants them praying with him. I believe that moment was the moment that Luke wrote about in Luke 4.13. Right at the conclusion of the temptation, remember what it says? It said the devil departed, but he would return at an opportune time. I believe this is that opportune time. This was a full frontal attack on the Lord Jesus to dissuade him from following through on his divine mission, which was to seek and to save those which are lost. And I believe Satan was attempting to derail God's redemptive program. He was tempting Jesus to short-circuit God's plan. Save yourself the pain of isolation as God pours out the wrath of his fury against sin upon you. Being under that significant crush of stress I love this about our Lord. He doesn't want to be alone. He didn't want to be by himself. He didn't isolate himself. To the contrary, he wanted company. He desired his closest friends to be present with him. Peter, James, John, and just a little further over, the rest of his chosen. He sought their sympathetic prayers. He needed their comfort and help at that critical moment. You see, the Lord Jesus understood the value and the necessity of the companionship of brothers in the face of crisis. So he has them with him in the garden at this critical time. Not only does Jesus model this, not only did Moses model this, but frankly, it's the concept of the New Testament. The church in 1 Timothy 3.15 and in 1 Peter 4.17 is called a household. And what is a household? A family. A family. And we're to relate to each other 
as intimate family members, according to 1 Timothy 5. He says, Timothy, I want you to treat the older men as your father, and I want you to treat the older women as your mother, and I want you to treat your younger men as brothers and your younger women as sisters. We're a family. And frankly, the concept is further emphasized by the many one-another commands of the New Testament. Think about it. Romans 12, 5, we are individually members one of another. We're connected in Christ. As we sit here today, we're connected. How about 12, 10? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice. In Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. I always found this chapter interesting because in one place he says, bear one another's burdens, and just a few verses later he says what? Bear your own burden. But he uses different words for burden. One means a load you can't carry. The other means a backpack. There are some loads you can carry by yourself, but then there are the big ones that you can't carry by yourself. We carry them with one another. James 5.16, pray for one another. Hebrews 10.24, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. But how does the verse begin? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Even back in the first century, people were kind of weird about going to church. He says, don't do that because if you're not with one another, you can't stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You see, we need others caring for us, surrounding us, standing with us, praying for us, encouraging us, comforting us, and exhorting us. But you cannot do that when you're in isolation and you're living outside the community. Jesus had his intimate three, Peter, James, and John. Another question for all of you, who are your intimate three? Who are your intimate three who can be present with you and they can pray for you, they can pray with you, they can encourage you and they can counsel you in your battles with the devil? I just want to say four things. One, recognize you need your Christian brothers and sisters. We are family. I'm sorry, it's another rock and roll mention here, but there was a group called Sister Sledge, which interesting name. In 1979, they had a big hit, and it became the anthem for the Pittsburgh Pirates when they won the World Series that year. And it went, we are family. I got all our sisters with me. Everybody together. We, no. This, okay. Folks, we are family. Les and I were raised in good families, but they weren't the family of God. And being born again and becoming a part of the body of Christ has been such an incredible thing, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, stop focusing only on your needs and look at the needs of others from time to time. In the ministry, Alex talked a little bit about it last night, we can develop a poor me syndrome. But as he challenged us, this is our calling. This is our calling. We are under shepherds. For the chief shepherd in our job is to care for the sheep. 
And that's hard sometimes, and it's painful sometimes. And we might like to think about ourselves sometimes. But I don't think the good shepherd ever thought about himself. But he always thought about his sheep. And if we're his under-shepherds, that should be our focus of attention. Stop focusing on your own needs and look at the needs of others. You know, there's a lot of verses on this, and the one that's always kind of struck me right between the eyes is Philippians chapter 2, where we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Uh, I had a homiletics professor at Grisboom. His name was Ken Hasper. And I remember he said of this passage, he said, what this is teaching us is that life is not to be operated on the cafeteria plan, self-service only. And that should be something we understand as members of his family. We should think of others before we think of ourselves. And then thirdly, reach out when you see a fellow believer in need. For heaven's sake, do something. Do something. Don't be the James 2 person. Oh, I'm so sorry for your need. God bless you, brother. I'll be praying for you. Do something a little more tangible. Reach out when you see a need. Interesting study to do in the Gospels is note how often Jesus paid attention to people and then notice how that always prompted him to respond. There's a, there's a Greek word that's used to describe what he would feel when he would see the needs of the people who were struggling around him. It's the Greek word splegnizomai, and it, it literally means bowels. That's how deeply he felt it. It was gut-wrenching. Do we feel gut wrenching pain when we look at the needs of others? Or do we immediately go back to our three favorite people, me, myself, and I? We are to care for his sheep at all costs because we are a family, and it's our job to shepherd that family. And finally, allow others to help you. Don't put on the fake humility thing. Oh, no, no. There are others who have greater needs. Stop it. Just stop it. You have a need? Then let someone bless you by helping you. And that doesn't mean you're weak. As a matter of fact, you're weak if you refuse the help. You're weak if you say, I don't really need the help, when you need the help. Allow others to help you. All of this to say, God designed us for mutual, personal relationships in the body of Christ. We need each other in this family. And if we truly love one another, no matter the the burden carried or the battle faced, let's be a band of brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters united and strong because it is God's design. It is God's will. I close with this comes out of a book I read a number of years ago by Chuck Swindoll. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. And you go, what? Now just listen. It's an imitation. 
dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is permissive, accepting, and an inclusive fellowship. It's, an, it's unshockable. It's democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. So he concludes, with all my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat. And I've had it. I don't think that is always the body of Christ. I leave you with this thought. May we be such a dynamic community of care that we make non-believers question their disbelief in God because they see in this thing, the body of Christ, this dynamic care and concern. You have read it in your church history books, what was one of the observations they made of the early church? My, how they love one another. That's what this is all about. Brothers united and strong. So I pray God will grant us the grace to be that kind of a fellowship. That's what we're known for. God bless you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, We are so grateful that in eternity past, you chose to save us worthless sinners. You chose to send the Lord Jesus to come and be our Savior. And in time, you called us. The gospel came into our hearing and we came under conviction as the Spirit of God spoke to us and We fell on our knees before you and we confessed our sin and we said we're sinners and we need a Savior and we now know the Lord Jesus is that Savior and he came and he died and he rose again to prove he was the Son of God and to demonstrate that your justice had been satisfied and how grateful we are for that and that then placed us into this incredible living organism, the church that you describe as a family, a household, and we're brothers and sisters. And Lord, may you help us, as our theme suggests, to be brothers and sisters who are in this strong bond, deep affection, and we're prepared to engage with one another on any level that's necessary to see us through our struggles and our pain and our difficulties. May Ecclesiastes be a passage we think much about. May the one and others of the New Testament be verses we think much about. And we pray to you to grant the grace to have those kinds of relationships because you designed us and created us for community, to be interdependent and not independent. 
Lord, help us all to find that kind of comfort and support in your church. And those of us who lead your church, may you grant us grace to understand that we need that body too. And for those who need someone in their life, I pray that you would answer their prayer and provide that person, those persons. Thank you for once again our evening and our fellowship. We love you and we thank you for loving us. And we pray this all in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Amen.